Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 432. From travel, and she wore a high-necked dress after the local fashion. Her dark hair fell in a straight sheaf across her back, all except a single slender braid that hung close to her face. I caught her eye just as Deadnettle shouted out his first line in the play. I've cures for what hails you. My wares never fails you. I've potions for pennies, results guaranteed. So if you've got a dicky heart, or you can't get her legs apart, come straight away to my cart. You'll find what you need. Denna smiled when she saw me. We might have stayed for the play, but I already knew the ending. Hours later, Denna and I were eating sweet vintage grapes in the shadow of the shear. Some industrious stonemason had carved a shallow niche into the white stone of the cliff, making smooth seats of stone. It was a cozy place we had discovered while walking aimlessly through the city. We were alone, and I felt myself to be the luckiest man in the world. My only regret was that I didn't have her ring with me. It would have been the perfect unexpected gift to go with our unexpected meeting. Worse yet, I couldn't even tell Denna about it. If I did, I'd be forced to admit I'd used it as collateral for my loan with Debbie. You seem to be doing fairly well for yourself, Denna said, rubbing the edge of my burgundy cloak between her fingers. Have you given up the bookish life? Taking a vacation, I hedged. Right now I'm assisting the Mayor Alvarin with a thing or two. Her eyes widened appreciatively. Do tell. I looked away uncomfortably. I'm afraid I can't. Delicate matters and all that. I cleared my throat and tried to change the subject. What have you? You seem to be doing fairly well yourself. I brushed two fingers along the embroidery that decorated the high neck of her dress. Well... I'm not rubbing elbows with the mayor, she said, making an exaggerated deferential gesture in my direction. But as I mentioned in my letters, I... Letters? I asked. You sent more than one? That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. That's a real sexy touch, touching uh, her, the embroidery mm. near her neck. Very yes. intimate. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about the the fashion on this page because the fact that vintage women wear high-necked dresses, I think, tells us a little bit about uh, vintage morality and like vintage sexual mores. Because think about like think about the kinds of clothes that like Victorian women wore, right? Those super high-necked, long-sleeved blouses, cinched waist, like every inch of flesh below your chin was covered like up to the wrist and you know down to like your feet and that was in part a reflection of the fact that victorians had this kind of elaborate obsessive kind of prudishness and you know this this thing about like being proper and like not being lascivious or whatever and we know that vint is like a kind of super superstitious culture we know that they have like a kind of strong religious bent and we also know that they at least we know that the mayor and thus we can kind of assume high society takes a dim view of uh, of women who are free with their sexual favors and so i think that we can kind of piece together that high vintage fashion is a reflection of these cultural values and thus that denna has found herself in a relatively high position in vintage society, and she's dressing the part of like a proper vintage lady. All of that follows from I me. agree with that. I think the the mayor's attitude toward that uh, one sexually lascivious lady is perhaps a good reflection of that. 
if the highest person in the land thinks poorly of a, uh, a free uh, and uh, amorous woman, then no doubt the followers will think the same. And then I also want to talk about how the conversation that Quoth and Denna have kind of sets the tone for their relationship and resets the tone of their relationship. They haven't seen each other in quite some time, in like months, but they're falling right back into their old patterns. And in some sense, I feel like this is a regression for them because they're falling back into old patterns of like not being able to actually be truthful with one another, even about like, why are you here in this city? What have you been up to? Like they can't even answer simple questions like that. Small talk essentially with a straight answer, right? They both feel like they have to dissemble and lie. So we feel as readers that Quoth has a good reason for not telling Denna, but Denna might have a good reason for not telling Quoth, but we don't Do we though? Do we I think mean, that Blair's it's a good thing reason? Has to be kept secret, doesn't it? Does it though from Denna? I mean, I get like Denna's not just anybody, you know. I think that that someone close to Quoth would I don't know. We we have a joke about the friend DA where you're under NDA, but you know, it's not like so tight that you're going to lose your job around it. So you can sort of mention it to your friends and family, which is where I feel uh, Denna would be at. Um, obvious. And like the, the fact is that because I think Denna is an operator and I'm less and less sure that her intentions for Quoth or at least her, like her requirements around Quoth are all that honest. Like I think she truly does love Quoth or thinks she loves Quoth, but she is more uh, on the hook to her patron than anything else. So I actually do kind of think that she would use information uh, against him, not because she has malice, but because she has, has needs. But I just think that if they were both honest about what they were doing here, uh, it would be better for both of them. And I agree with Jeremy that it's a regression. Like it feels like they're both walking on eggshells a little bit more after being a lot more open the last few times that they've been together. And that makes me wonder what they've both experienced in the meantime that make them be this cagey. And it's also maybe just teenager stuff. Like I definitely remember, you know, I would go on a date with somebody and have a good time. You know, I'd, I'd loosen up throughout the date. I'd start kind of nervous and awkward and then loosen up and have a good time. And then the next time I saw them, I'd be nervous and awkward again because, you know, it, you're a time teenager. Time had passed, and... yeah. Exactly, exactly. So... I think that you're both right. Like, Jordana, you're right that, like, Foth did promise the mayor that, like, he wouldn't tell anybody about what he was up to. I also think that, like, part of a relationship, especially a romantic relationship, is trust. And part of that trust is often, like, trusting the other person with your secrets and trusting them with things that you don't want anyone else to know and wouldn't ever tell just anybody, right? And I I do happen to think that Foth could trust Denna with this secret and trust her not to reveal it. But then, of course, of course, of course, if we, you know, that might just be exactly what Denna is hoping for, right? That that Quoth will, you know, if she's already working an angle on him, if she is already in thrall to people who want to get at Quoth's secrets or people who have an interest in the mayor's business, then Quoth revealing that secret to her would be exactly what she wants and needs from him in that moment. So I think like, I think that that 
tension and that ambiguity is is deliberate and we are meant to feel some kind of way about it. And I think it's worth mentioning that it's not just Denna working Quoth. I think that Quoth, especially on the next few pages, starts trying to get information out of her to a place where she's not comfortable anymore. Um, and I think that the same is true. Yeah. And there's there's a note in the chat uh, that I had forgotten this, but we find out later that she doesn't actually believe that he's working for the mayor. She thinks that he's just bragging, which maybe is putting her on the defensive a bit because it's not like Quoth to to have such braggadocio, you know, so maybe she's starting to think, Oh, maybe he is just another, you know, guy talking himself up to get close to me. And it's worth noting, like now that you bring that up, I think that's a good point, And that would maybe make her suspicious. And Quoth doesn't exactly help his case because he tells her nothing. Like he could at least say, Oh, well, like I'm staying at the mayor's palace. I got introduced to him through my friend Thrape. You remember Thrape from, from, you know, from Imra, you know, he yeah, could there's definitely her... things that she can be told and he doesn't like, he, he, he could keep from her exactly his job for the mayor, but still tell her what he's up to. Yeah. In a way. And uh, yeah, he could tell her like in a general sense, he's like, he's so cagey. He's so cagey. I'm on vacation. You know, like he could be a little bit more honest with her without betraying the mayor's trust. My only other note is that the scansion of Dead Metal's lines in the play uh, irks me because it's not consistent, or it's like it's like um, syncopated. It's like a weird rhythm. Well, you reminded me this. I actually did want to mention this. This reminds me of the opening to a Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, operetta. They tend to open with a single person on stage singing, and then more people jump in, and 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 the, the start opening number starts, but. Uh, you know, it reminds me of the opening of Oklahoma. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. Or uh, the um, the Who Will Buy song from Oliver. This this really feels like a, uh, a stock structure for an operetta. Uh, and it, it rings true to me. And it, feel, that's, it feels honest. Like, I totally believe that this is a play that exists. I am always interested when we get uh, quotes from fiction inside fiction because it's easy to sort of describe a story but when you get a section quoted to you uh, like this or like uh, at the beginning of the chapter when we get the diegetic text from the genealogical textbook uh, to me uh, it, it says that the author is trying to tell us something very specific it's not just the the theme or the message from the fiction. It's that there's something in those words that's important. Um, and this section here, I think is meant to give us a better understanding of the character of dead metal. Like he's a bit of a clown, a trickster. He's not like an evil poisoner. He's, he's glib. He's a huckster. He's a, he's a snake oil salesman. He's a, he's a Henry Hill, which is another Rogers and Hammerstein character. He's uh he's a Lyle Landley. Yeah, he's a lot. That's who I was going to say. Yeah, well, uh, I hate to break it to you, Jeremy, but Lyle Landley is a send up of Henry Hill from the Music Man. Uh, right. so, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it feels like that character. And I think that, like, initially I was thinking of him as, you know, a uh, a, a stoic plague doctor, you know, not yeah, speaking like much, very sinister. But I could actually see Codicus playing this part, you know, like sort of a, a, a funny, f- friendly, but a little bit sinister and suspicious character. Mm-hmm. A real Rodney Dangerfield type. <laughs> uh, I, 
on the subject of like diegetic like texts within the text, I have a slightly different interpretation of why you might want to include those kinds of things. And it's it's to for me, it's like all about giving the world more texture. Uh, it's less about like communicating stuff that's going to be like relevant to the big mysteries than it is about like this is what this kind of play sounds like. And like you know, if he is riffing on like a a Rodgers and Hammerstein, Gilbert and Sullivan kind of thing, then that gives Three Pennies for Wishing a very different uh, flavor than the demon play that we learned about than Deonica, which sounds way more like Faustus or Shakespeare. Um, and and the text that we get from that play feels a lot more kind of in that fashion. Mm-hmm. In in the real world, we have morality plays which predate these sort of operettas, and they were very not very whimsical, played very straight, sort of a a theatrical version of a chick tract where everyone who is a sinner goes to hell in the end, and everyone who is a good character uh, gets to ascend to heaven. Uh, and so Dionica feels like a real world morality play, whereas this feels like a slightly more contemporary comedic operetta. I saw there was like a thread on Twitter about this, and I thought it was an interesting thing to ponder on. It's one thing to have an author tell us like, oh, so-and-so played a song and it was the best song anyone's ever heard. It's another thing for the author to give us like, here's the notation for the song, here are the lyrics for the song, and this is the best song anyone's ever heard, right? Then you have to really put your money where your mouth is. And I'm always really impressed by any creator who can who can do that convincingly and relatedly who can like shift their the style of their their prose or their art to suit the thing that they're trying to do like whenever like Rothfuss here you know kind of shifts modes into writing a kind of like old fashioned play and he does that more than once he like writes a couple of different kinds of song lyrics as well and similarly i'm always really impressed when like a comic book artist successfully not only do they have their own very distinctive style but they can successfully mimic the styles of of other comic book artists too um and often more than one on the same page alex maliev is actually really good at that um and like alan moore for example in the league of extraordinary gentlemen comics um in the black dossier which is way more of like um a kind of bundle of found documents that are loosely strung together by a comic book. Like Alan Moore writes like a Jeeves and Worcester pastiche. He writes like an excerpt from a Shakespeare play and all the excerpts and like pastiches that he writes are completely convincing. He like, he's so good at writing in the voice of somebody else. And I just always find that a really remarkable thing uh, that an author can do that well. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when it fails, it, it really fails hard. There's a, a joke I hear a lot on podcasts, which is never remind, if you're in a, if you're a movie, never remind the viewers of a better movie. And similarly, in movies about like musicians, there's often like the song that makes them a star. And that song has to slap because if not, it is, you know, really dumb. The idea that this song is like what unites a nation I've I've never seen this done right in movies about stand-up comics. The stand-up com- comedy is always terrible, and we it just cuts like they'll say a joke that won't be funny, and they'll cut to the audience like killing themselves laughing, and that's the signal that like this is great comedy. But I have never seen a movie about a stand-up comic where they do good stand-up comedy. Yeah, and like you know, to be fair, writing good comedy is like really really hard. I think, but I completely agree with you that it has to. If you're gonna claim that like this piece of art is dynamite then 
it really has to sell it by being that good or your whole premise falls apart. And it's especially difficult if you're doing like a biopic of a fictional band, but they're meant to be contemporaneous with actual bands that we know are good. Like to give you a counter example, a movie that I think does this really well is almost famous, um, which is a movie about like kind of a fake rock band from the sixties. That's like, or seventies, I guess that's like kind of meant to be a like Crosby stills, Nash and young, like, Fleetwood Mac kind of band you know we know that like uh, you know the Grateful Dead and Fleetwood Mac and David Bowie are all like you know name checked in the movies like we know that they all exist in this world and that this fake band Stillwater is supposed to be just as good and just as famous as them and I feel like there's only one or two Stillwater songs in the movie that were like written for the film but they do feel completely authentic to that time and place and genre and they do really sell that like this is a like a real band from that time. I've seen just as many movies where it doesn't work. Cool. Uh, just another movie that does this really well, I think is, um, Oh, that thing you do, uh, which is about a band that is a one hit wonder. In fact, I think that's where the phrase one hit wonder originated. Certainly the first time I encountered it. And the song that is from that movie is very good, but it's also like the sort of song that is good enough to be a pop hit, but like not take the world by storm which is exactly mm-hmm. what the movie's about. So I think about that as like the gold standard for like fictional songs that are meant to fulfill a narrative purpose. And in some sense, it's easier to write like a parody song than it is to write something that's actually sincerely meant to be good in the fiction. So like the best song in the world. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the genius of the best song in the world, right, is that they never actually play you the best song in the world. They play the song that they wrote about the best song that they can't remember. But even that is slaps like is a great song. By all means, give us a rendition, Jeremy. Mm, that'll have to wait for like our $300 a month Patreon tier. <laughs> the uh, Jeremy and Nick do karaoke tier. We can finally go back to karaoke. Yeah, this was a karaoke standard of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one day. It was good every time. <laughs> Folks. It's the trick is to get to the karaoke bar earlier, early enough that you can claim that song before somebody else does it. Because if you show up at karaoke at like ten o'clock, someone's already done tribute. Depends on the bar. Well, uh, you see, the the best stuff to do at the bar is Gilbert and Sullivan and Rogers and Hammerstein operettas because they slap and no one ever picks them. And they're really fast, so only a few people can do them. <laughs> mm-hmm, yes, only trained actors. But I still fondly remember, I believe I was with the two of you at that karaoke bar that's near U of T. And there was obviously a table of like musical theater students who were slumming it at karaoke night. And one of them went up and did the Minnie the Moocher, which is like an old like Cab Calloway song from the 20s that has a call and response. And A, she killed it. She had a great voice. And B, she got the entire bar singing along to the call and response, uh, which was a very memorable karaoke evening. Yeah, I find myself wondering if karaoke will ever come back, or at least like in the next decade. You know, karaoke is going to be something that's going to be tough to get people out to. Yeah, sharing a mic. Yeah. Well, uh, they call me the mood killer. And with that, (laughs) let's end the episode. I look forward to the mood killer's next hit single on tomorrow's page. (laughs) Of the wind. wind.